Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome out there in Blog Talk Radio land and over at Rainbow Soul and iTunes. We get a lot of listeners from iTunes uh, who are tuning in to our show. We've been we started with Rainbow Soul actually going into our fifteenth year. So I want to welcome our new listeners, and I will introduce the show for our new listeners. But we have a lot of loyal listeners who've been with us for going on 15 years now. I want to thank each of those listeners. But I want to drop this thought with you before we introduce the show and our awesome guest this morning. And the thought I want to leave with you is when you do something out of love, you don't count the cost. And isn't that so true? Welcome, you guys. For those in the United States, it depends on what part of the United States you're in. Remember, uh, if if you practice daylight savings time where you live, it ends this weekend. So we get to fall back, roll those clocks back an hour uh, early, early, early Sunday morning to get another hour of sleep. So welcome again to our Saturday, November the 2nd show. And you are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show off the shelf. And we do have an, a talented Arthur on deck for you and somebody who's been active in television as well. But before we introduce you to our guest, Arthur Chef listeners, I have to ask you, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you really like mystery? I, I, I love mysteries like Columbo and there's another one my brother was telling me about a TV show, but just reading a mystery book or watching a TV, TV or going to the movies, a mystery. I, I've always, since I was a kid, want to figure out who did it before it is revealed. And sometimes some people are very good at it. They pay so much close attention. Every clue in the story gives you a hint to what really, really happened. If you love a mystery, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. But not only that, if you value relationships and love, there's a soulmate relationship in here, and this story kicks off when Raymond, he's a a track and field star on his way to the Olympics, and he's also very uh, academically talented. He grows up in a troubled home, though. But when he and Brenda meet in college, they're soulmates. But this is not a smooth and easy relationship so if you really value love and the twists and turns our lives go in, how long would you wait for the relationship you know you're meant to be in? If you value love and family and there are four friends in here, I think you're going to – these four dude friends are lifetime friends and what they go through. And, and is one of them involved in the murder in the story? If you like mystery and relationships, and you just like to hang on the edge of your seat while you're reading a book, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me Now. It's an e-book in print. If you don't see it in, at the library, at the bookstore, just ask the clerk, tell them you want to order a copy, copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can order a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And remember, when you do something out of love, you don't count the cost. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special guest this morning is Gordon Castellanero. I hope I say his name correctly. If I don't, I'll be corrects me. Now, Gordon has produced documentaries for Detroit Television. Told you he was involved in TV. He is a Christian who has authored books such as Stand on the Vine, TV Land Detroit, and Earl Scruggs, a bluegrass banjo legend. 
Gordon graduated from California State University with a degree in radio, television, and film. And while in Detroit, he worked at WNIC Radio, where he learned to produce shows. He and a friend started Canberra Entertainment after receiving rejections for a television documentary documentary idea that they had. Now, the documentary, Michigan, is started here, aired on December 7, 1996. The show was a hit, earning an 11.5 rating and a Michigan Emmy nomination. Now, Gordon went on to write and produce two more documentaries, Michigan and the American Dream in 1998 and Titanic, the final chapter in 1999. He has written more than 25 television show proposals and earned more than six Michigan Emmy nominations. Gordon lives in Michigan with his wife and daughter, and you can find Gordon online at dreamworldenterprises.net forward slash castanero.html. I'm going to spell it D R E A M. W-O-R-L-D-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot N-E-T forward slash C-A-S-T-E-L-N-E-R-O dot H-T-M-L. We're delighted to have Gordon with us this morning. Welcome off the shelf, Gordon. Well, thank you very much for having me, Denise. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Oh, and then we look forward to what you share, especially... You you are one of the now we've had a movie producer on one or two movie producers maybe even three on off the shelf, but this is the first you're the first person with as much TV television. Uh, we have had an actress on here recently who has a book out, but the most television experience I think you are a first. So it is absolutely oh, wow. a pleasure to have you <laughs> with us on off the shelf. The first few questions I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest. Sure. When I started this show almost 15 years ago, I would just go right into the questions. And listeners okay. sent me emails and said, could you just give us a little backstory on the guest before you go into questions? So the first few questions I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest who comes on the show. So to kick it off, Gordon, could you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you, what life was like for you growing up in Detroit? Well, I grew up in the uh, suburb of uh, Detroit, uh, in the city of uh, Livonia. Uh, that's where I spent uh, most of my life, and uh, it was just a typical uh, suburban uh, upbringing. Um, and uh, um, I, I don't really know much more to uh, to elaborate uh, on that. I graduated from high school in 1983. I went to community college uh, here in uh, here in Michigan. Uh, for a few years, and then I decided I uh, wanted to uh, pursue a career in uh, Hollywood, and so I went to college out in Long Beach, California uh, to do that. I got a bachelor's degree in telecommunications, radio, television, and film, and uh, I actually, believe it or not, this is kind of an interesting story, I came to a fork in the road uh, moment um, at uh, at the time, I was two weeks away from graduating uh, with my bachelor's degree that took me seven years to get <laughs> because I had to go part-time for a while. But uh, anyway, I was two weeks away, and I had a job interview with Aaron Spelling Productions. This was in the summer of wow. 1990, yes. And this was right before they started uh, revamping themselves. Spelling Productions uh, 
at that time, had always been known for shows like, uh, you know, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, uh, Vegas. Yeah. And uh, they went on hiatus for a while, and uh, they were getting ready to relaunch themselves, of course, with a new series called Beverly Hills 90210. And I didn't know what the show was at the time, but they had a uh, opening for a film runner, and I was interviewed for it. And interestingly enough, when I I was at the interview, the guy pretty much offered me the job uh, on the spot. And then um, when he wanted me to start the next day, I told him, I said, well, I need two weeks. Uh, Two weeks is pretty well standard, I I think, for most uh, folks. And uh, certainly if I had been working another job, it wouldn't have to be. But I was two weeks away from graduating from college, and uh, the guy was really pressuring me to, to start the next day. And the hours were going to be like 7 in the morning till 7 in the evening. And, uh, you know, I just thought to myself, well, if I drop out of school now, how am I going to make up my classes? You know, uh, I certainly wouldn't be able to, to have the time to do it because that's, you know, a 12-hour day. Uh, when would I go? And so I pretty much pleaded with him to just give me the two weeks and I'd be his guy. And he just told me, he said, well, if you can't commit to me now, you're no good to me in two weeks. <laughs> So it was a fork in the road moment that I just had to kind of walk away from. I figured, you know, graduating from school was certainly uh, more important uh, at the time. And uh, and I don't regret the decision. But uh, I stayed out there for another year. And then I ended up coming back uh, to my home state of Michigan. I uh, began working, uh, as you had mentioned, WNIC Radio. Uh, Certainly at that time, Detroit was number six. Uh, in uh, in the nation in terms of radio market share, so it was, it was major market radio. Um, I enjoyed uh, working there as producer on uh, morning drive time uh, show, as well as their Sunday morning uh, public affairs programs. And then I just had a yearning to want to get into television. And yeah, a friend of mine who worked at the radio station, we just got to, to chit chatting about it, and we decided we'll crash the industry. We'll go out kind of uh, pursue uh, something on our own. It was based off an idea that I had for a local documentary. And it just kind of went uh, from there. And uh, I ended up getting to do uh, what I always dreamed about doing, which were documentaries. I did them uh, independently uh, from uh, from the stations, but I was able to work with the stations, you know, certainly to get them on the air and in their final forms. And, uh, uh, but what, what was good about it, the way I had done it, was it put a lot of control of the project into my hands. So I got to do it my way, uh, which is uh, which is what I really wanted. And I got some nice accolades off it. And then I decided I wanted to write some books. And uh, the first one was about old Detroit TV shows, uh, TV Land Detroit. And then uh, later after that, I co-authored a book on Earl Scruggs, which was his... Uh, uh, first uh, biography and uh, certainly family approved, Scruggs family approved. And then I wanted to kind of do a testament to my faith in Christ. And that brings us to uh, the book at hand, Staying on Fine. Wow. So so you never regret, you know, it's interesting. Aaron Spelling was huge. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. Back, back then, I mean, he was one one of the top, top. TV sitcom uh, producers, so you you never said, oh my god, and that's amazing. It's well, two more weeks. 
did you you never wondered what if I had said yes? Sometimes some yes. of the decisions we make have have they affect all of the rest of our life. A decision that we make, not just for a little while, the whole rest of it. You never look back and say, "Man, what if I had went with them?" Exactly. I you know I look back on it and I think to myself, you know, had I had I gone ahead and done that. Uh, where would I be today? I might have a nice career out there, or you know, for all I know, they could have fired me uh, after a, you know, a couple of weeks. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, to say, but uh, I don't regret uh, the decision, uh, you know, certainly at all. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think we're all kind of confronted with those moments in our life. Uh, uh, you know, you always hope that you make the right one, and I think in the end, we always uh, we always do. Okay, it's good you don't have any regrets. So uh, nope. things have gone well. When you were a kid, you majored in, you, you were one of, I want to tell you, you're one of the few guests on our show. When I ask them, when I do the research and read their bio and what they're doing, a lot of people do do no, nothing close to their major. <laughs> Almost amazing. <laughs> Like you're one of the few, so many they do nothing close to the major. That said, what did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? Well, when I was a kid, I kind of had a real affinity uh, for Hollywood, and I did want to kind of uh, be a part of it. You know, certainly uh, the acting aspect is is what's most attractive to you uh, at that time because it's what you see and not uh, what you don't see. But uh, as uh, as I got older, I started to and I started taking classes in, in high school uh, for television. I started to really like what was going on behind the camera, and uh, me being kind of a shy guy uh, by nature, uh, I kind of learned very quickly that being in front of the camera takes a lot more courage than I was willing to give it. So. <laughs> Uh, working uh, working behind the scenes uh, really fulfilled a lot in me, and I liked the, all the creative aspects. I liked coming up with the ideas, uh, coming up with something out of nothing, and then watching it materialize into something. And that, uh, for me, is, is the biggest thrill of it all. And uh, certainly that's, uh, that's what I got to do. And, I, and I'm glad, uh, glad that I have the successes that I have. Uh, were, on the local level, I always had dreams of, you know, going way beyond that, certainly to a national level, uh, which I, I didn't get to do, but I kind of look back on it and think, you know, the Lord really blessed me uh, because uh, he did give me the successes that I always dreamed about doing, and he gave them to me in a, in a means by which I had control over them, whereas I think, uh, you know, trying to go out to, to the height that I uh, that I dreamed of uh, doing, I might not have ever got to the level that I wanted to be at. I could still be really doing, I guess you could say interesting. Work. Oh yeah. Yeah, I um one of the things too um I'll, I'll throw in uh when I was in college I did an internship and it was very it was a very unique one. Uh I didn't quite know a hundred percent when I was in college uh what kind of an internship I wanted to do. And of course, you know, again I'm in Southern California and everybody at radio, television, and film, they all wanted to be directors. They all wanted to be writers. They all wanted to be editors and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, those internships are going to be a dime a dozen. What can I do that's going to be something that's going to be really unique? So when it came time for me to meet with my advisor, I said, I think I'd like to be a casting director. <laughs> ah. they, had never, they had never had anybody uh, 
uh, approach them with that. And so they set up a special internship just for me with Cenex uh, Casting. That was the sister company of Central Casting. And Central Casting, I think, is still in business today. They go all the way back to 1925, this big casting agency um, in Burbank, uh, California. And so uh, and they did all casting for union uh, extras. And uh, their sister company, uh, which was basically on the other side of the room, just uh, through the other side of the door, uh, was Cenex Casting, and that was all the non-union. So I got to go there. Uh, every day uh, to Burbank and sit in the office and help uh, cast uh, extras and, and uh, movies, uh, A-list features at that time. And I uh, got to go on movie sets and see big stars and actually uh, just uh, kind of hang out for the morning after I passed out the vouchers. I got to kind of hang around as late as I wanted to. And uh, I usually did up until about uh, lunchtime because then I had to get back to school and go to class. <laughs> Wow, you, you you knew what you wanted to do, and you stayed on that path, which is impressive to me. You knew oh, what you wanted you. to thank do. You. Yeah, you knew what you wanted to do. You didn't get like, uh, I think that's impressive. Um, so tell us, I want to talk about your books, definitely, but tell us sure. what it was like working at WNIC, producing uh, the shows, and then I also want to ask you the impact you see the internet in the in the next coming years having on radio and television. But first, can you tell us what it was like working at WNIC? Well, at WNIC, the big star uh, there was uh, Jim Harper. Uh, he had uh, been on uh, WNIC since the late seventies. He had uh, the biggest morning show that I can remember, uh, which was uh, Harper and Gannon. And then it later became Jim Harper uh, and the Breakfast Club. But, um, you know, I remember listening to uh, Jim and Steve, uh, Harper and Gannon, uh, on the radio uh, in junior high school and in high school. And so when I got to uh, be there uh, in the early 90s, in uh, October of 92 is when I started there, it was a big thrill for me just to be there, just to see them live to watch them do their show and then just kind of do whatever it is that they needed me to do. And then uh, I got to uh, learn how to run the, uh, the, the big audio consults in radio stations. And uh, so then they had me uh, running the board uh, there uh, for uh, other, uh, other hours, a lot of uh, weekend shifts I had to do uh, for that. But uh, it was a big thrill uh, for me, uh, certainly uh, to be a part of a, of a, a big uh, radio gig, and um, then, uh, of course, that led to being there on Sunday mornings, uh, doing the uh, Sunday morning public affairs uh, shows, uh, which uh, wasn't quite on the same level uh, as uh, the morning drive, but still, it, it was something that, that I got to do, and just a different aspect of radio. I saw all kinds of uh, things about uh, radio that I really liked. I've had a lot of people tell me that I have a radio voice, and that I'd be good on the air, and uh, as much as I thought about it uh, and would love to have done that, I'm not a very good reader. I have uh, dyslexia, and I transpose stuff, so if I'm reading things out loud, I transpose words uh, so easily and so frequently that I knew if I had to read live spots on the air or liners on the air, I'd probably have to pre-record them and uh, and then play a tape, which wouldn't be right, and... Uh, 
uh, because going on the air, I'd probably uh, wind up uh, messing up uh, a live spot, and uh, it wouldn't be good. So I just I enjoyed my place uh, off the air and, uh, and just being there and uh, editing a lot of tapes. They had me do a lot of that, a lot of uh, editing, a lot of promos and uh, things that I uh, that I did uh, for the morning show, uh, editing contests. Uh, other things that they would use, uh, sound effects and bits and things like that, uh, was a big thrill for me. I loved that, absolutely loved it. In fact, I uh, remember a couple times being there all night uh, editing tapes. <laughs> and it was the wow. old way, too. It wasn't digital. It was before digital editing. Uh, digital editing was just very new at that time. And WNIC uh, didn't have that kind of equipment, so it was the old way with the big reel-to-reel tapes. You know, where you have to really listen, you know, uh, kind of do with the tapes, you know, slow and start, kind of where you hear the voice going to work. And then, you know, where to bark it with the grease pencil, then cut it literally with a razor blade, and then put it back in. And sometimes, you know, you get a little snippet off and you cut a word off. Now you got to go back and find that little piece that you cut out, put that back in. so, but I, I loved it. I, I really loved it. I, I, I really, uh, truly enjoyed that job. I wanted to, how different is writing for or working in television versus radio? And I'm, I'm asking questions for our listeners who may be interested in going down a similar path that you've gone down. Well, some people, you know, would kind of think that um, television is just a natural graduation from or natural transition from radio and it's not. They're two very different mediums and uh, they both have very different uh, expectations uh, with them. I mean, television, uh, everything is about what you see. And, uh, you know, the radio, you don't have to worry about being seen, but uh, certainly in television you do. So everything has to be visually impressive. It can't just sound impressive. Um, I remember uh, being uh, discouraged um, and I, I say the person that was doing this was trying to discourage me, but I had a program director when I was taking my uh, show, Michigan, and started here trying to get it off the ground. Uh, I initially wanted to do a co-production with the television stations, and all the TV stations were rejecting me. And one program director uh, said to me uh, very boldly uh, on the telephone, do you know what the history of our stations uh is of taking things from a first-time producer, it is zero. And since you're a radio person, why don't you stick with what you know and make your show a radio show? <laughs> and oh, I thought, okay. well, that totally, yeah, that totally defeats the purpose of what I'm trying to do. I don't want to do a radio <laughs> show. I want to do a TV show. Right. I want to show vintage pictures, you know, and, uh, and it shows something that people would actually watch. And uh, as opposed to just listen to, so I didn't let it discourage me, even though it was, I think, kind of meant to do that. Um, but I wasn't going to allow it to do it. Uh, you know, God certainly gave me determination and drive to succeed, and um, you know, and I was, uh, I was very driven to uh, to do that. But um, again, it's a very different medium. I had TV people tell me. Uh, that if I wanted to start a TV, start out as an intern, start doing, you know, right at the bottom, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go in as a producer. I wanted to be a director. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to kind of start out, you know, at a much higher level. I didn't want to go back 
and, and at my uh, age at that time, I was in my uh, I was in my uh, early 30s. And I didn't want to uh, I, I didn't want to start uh, down at the bottom and, and, and be an intern and and uh, just uh, and do things like that. I I really wanted to, you know to uh, I guess you could say for lack of a better term exploit the talent that I I knew that I had to offer, and so that's how I had to do it independently and it was. It ended up being very impressive to some of the TV people who said, you know, this just doesn't happen. You just don't crash the industry the way uh, you did, and, you know, and, and make something and, and make something well. Um, so. Um, wow. I, say, I tell you, 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 you're, you're, you have a clear path, it sounds like, when I hear you talk. You, you know what you want, and you just uh, keep going forward. Before we start talking about staying on the vine, I had to ask you as I was researching for your interview. It must have been so exciting after you, you I was going to ask you earlier and you answered the question if you got discouraged when you were shopping Michigan and started here and what what kept you going but it to go through all that and be told you have to start as an intern and people telling you this isn't how it's done, why don't you just stick with radio? It must have been so exciting watching Michigan and starting it on TV for the first time. Did you have like a house full of family and friends over? Was it like this big, <laughs> huge celebrate? I mean, how exciting would that be? You know, it's funny because I thought about stuff like that, but I guess just the humility in me prevented me from doing that. Uh I was uh, married at the time uh, with, in my first marriage, and um, it was just uh, uh, my wife and I who had uh, just sat down together and watched it. But, uh, of course, you know, uh, there was a bunch of phone calls, uh, you know, that were made after that. But uh, it was a big thrill. It was just it was an awesome thrill. I just kept thinking something's going to go wrong and it's not going to air. Something's going to go wrong and it's not going to air. Or, you know, you, you get that uh you get that doubt that just kind of creeps in because you sometimes think, well, maybe it was too good to be true. But uh, when it came on the air, I was I I, I was tickled pink, and uh, it was one of the biggest thrills of my life. Oh, congratulations! Con- uh, congratulations! Now we're going to switch to your books. We may come back and talk about TV sure. a little bit. I'm I'm really impressed with when I was just so excited what you've done in television. Just amazing. But switching to your books, what inspired you to write the specific book, Staying on the Vine? Well, I wanted to put out a testament uh, to my faith in Christ and uh, kind of tell a very compelling story. You know, I've I've watched a lot of Christian movies um, and I've read. You know, Christian books, certainly a lot of nonfiction Christian books, but um, the Christian movies all tend to be, you know, fictionalized uh, based on uh, you know, some aspects of the Bible um, or based on true stories. And I felt that was the best way to go for me. I felt if I was going to write a book uh, that was Christian themed, how could I how could I approach it? And I'm not a pastor. Um, I don't have any standing uh, in the church. I just attend church. Uh, like most folks, and uh, and I have my faith, so what, you know, how am I going to get a book off the ground? Because most of your Christian books, you know, your uh, ones uh, that are uh, uh, non-fiction, certainly, are done by pastors or people with some sort of a standing in the church or or people who are 
well-known uh, in, in the world of uh, Christianity, and uh, certainly I am not. I'm just a regular guy, so what can I do? So that's when it just kind of hit me between the eyes, and I thought, well, maybe I just need to do this as, as a novel. And so I thought, well, what kind of a story could I tell? And I thought, well, uh, I could use a lot of my own story, a lot of elements of myself in there, a lot of elements of my wife, my uh my uh, second and permanent wife, uh, you know, her uh, uh, her testament, uh, you know, a bit of her background and just kind of how we came together and where we went forward uh, in our journeys and all the mistakes in our lives that we made along the way. I wanted to touch upon a whole host of uh, things that uh, I think everybody goes through uh, in their life. I didn't want it just to be uh, I didn't want it to be misleading. I wanted it to be very real and uh, and impact everybody, whether you're a Christian or even if you're a non-Christian. I wanted everybody who could pick up the book and, and read through the pages and, and find themselves, or at least a part of themselves, uh, in this book. And uh, that's uh, that was the whole basis for doing uh, Staying on the Vine, and I'm hoping that I've done that well. So did you have like a was there was there a specific uh other than wanting to encourage others based on you know your experiences like this is worth it you have to believe something is worth it first I think to keep going and then share it with others but was there did you have some people it's a traumatic experience and then they then they sit down and they'll write a book was there something a specific specific experience you had that made you want to write it, or did you just say, I want to share this story with others based on what I think this is very rewarding to do? I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because uh, you hit on something that I think is very important and that really goes to the core of staying on the vine. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Christian media um, people's you know um, coming to uh, coming to the Lord uh, that you see is you know based off of some sort of tragedy in their life. It's, it's something uh, traumatic, you know, whether it was a horrific accident, you know, near-death experiences, or, they, you know, uh, they were rich, now they're poor, whatever, whatever tragedy uh, in their life they've experienced. Well, I didn't have that. And I think most people, um, most people go through life pretty well unscathed. I mean, we all have our, um, we all have our, uh, our problems in life. Uh, certainly, and uh, things that are uh, very, uh, very, uh, I don't want to say horrific, but I, I guess, you know, very devastated, that's probably the better way to say it, very devastating moments uh, in our lives that, you know, we can't explain why did this happen, why did this happen, why did God let this uh, happen, you know, certainly uh, we ask ourselves in, in those moments, but I think most folks don't uh, necessarily connect with these really try to, I mean, they do, but they don't. And what I mean by that is um, you can go see a movie, a very powerful movie, about somebody who experienced a real tragedy in their life and then brought them, uh, it brought them uh, to Jesus. And you can be very impacted by that. But then the next day you go about your, your life as business as usual. So um, and I thought that's probably most people, and certainly that's you know true of me. So how can I make a statement of a better life in Christ versus a life without Christ? 
And the best way I thought to do that was to just kind of use elements of my life, things in my life uh, that I've gone through that are uh, related. Uh, I know relatable is not an exact word, but, uh, but that most people can relate to and just kind of see, okay, well, now I see that this, you know, obviously isn't going to work in life. And if I go uh, with Christ, then, yeah, I will have a better life. So it's more for the everyday person more for the, uh, you know, the everyday life uh, that you live to show that while you think, you know, things in your life might be fine, there are things in your life that probably aren't, and they're not biblically correct. They're not, you know, they're not pleasing to God, and here's what they are, and here's what you need to repent from. Mm. Can you give our off-the-shelf listeners an overview, uh, a brief synopsis of Stain on the Vine? Sure. It's a it's a, a the story of two people, Lindsay Kish and Nick Robinson, and uh, it's about them how they are born into regular, uh, you know, middle class uh, families that uh, uh, were Christian uh, based, uh, you know, homes that uh, uh, claim to have practiced uh, Christianity, but uh, both uh, Nick and Lindsay, in their own ways, growing up, didn't really see. Uh, the, the practice of it, so they grew up as Christians in name only. And, of course, by being a Christian in name only, um, you start to nurture your vices, and then you start to really kind of gravitate towards them. And then that's what happens uh, with them. They both go their own ways uh, apart from God and really nurture their vices, so when they come of age, now they're, they're, they're wallowing in their, in their sins. And their sins that um, I, I have each one of them kind of represent uh, different uh, sins that uh, that are everyday uh, uh, sins, but uh, also very prevalent uh, in our culture. For example, uh, Lindsay kind of uh, represents uh, the sins of, uh, of power and, and materialism and money and status, uh, which then uh, leads to uh, gluttony. Um, then there's uh, Nick, who kind of wallows in uh, pleasures of the flesh, uh, fornication and pornography, and uh, he later turns to mysticism and uh, and uh, you know psychics and, and and tarot and all that kind of stuff. So both of these folks, and these are all things that go on in our society every single day. But how do they get out of them, and what brings them to Christ, and how do they stay in Christ? How do they stay on the vine? You know, because if you're familiar with the passage uh, in uh, in the New Testament, uh, in, in John, where Jesus says, "I am the vine; you are the branches." You know, uh, as long as a man remains in me, and I in him, um, you know, he will bear fruit. Apart from me, you know, you can do nothing. And uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing that as best as I can, but uh, certainly that's uh, uh, that's where the, the story goes. So it's really seen through the lenses of their life stories and then uh, them coming together and then developing a romance, and they find out because each one of them is kind of not the other's type, if, uh, you, know, uh, if you get the idea on that one. Uh, each one of them is they're, – they're both um, – they have a spiritual attraction is, is what keeps them together. And through the spiritual attraction, that becomes, you know, just uh, an ongoing attraction uh, amongst them to where they, you know, they fall in love and uh, certainly they marry. And their life is fulfilled uh, with the blessing of a child, which is something that they both uh, yearn for 
um, and they didn't get in their previous marriages. That's the other thing, too. <clears throat> They're both a couple of uh, middle-aged uh, divorcees, and it really does kind of go to, you know, um, second chances and uh, having a second chance uh, in, a, in a life of Christ. Now, where is the story set, and what what is Lindsay Kish, what does she do in, uh, for a living? Is, is she a housewife? You know, she said she's into the material aspect of things before she comes to Christ. But so, where is the story set, and what what does Lindsay do before she meets Nick, and what is what is Nick's career path? Well, uh, the story takes place in uh, suburban Detroit, <laughs> uh, where I, I like am. Detroit. And, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and uh, Lindsay is the type of girl that wants to be taken care of. Uh, you know, she is very attracted to men who uh, who are all about flash and cash, and so she looks to uh, you know to gravitate towards a, a, a man who can take care of her. And of course, she makes you know bad choices uh, in in that department. She then ends up having to go to school. And uh, she ends up taking a job uh, in the staffing uh, industry, uh, placing uh, uh, contingent workers uh, into uh, in, into uh, into jobs, and that's where she goes. And of course, uh, when she gets there, she makes friends with a woman named Faye, of course, who's a born again Christian, and she sees how hard she has to work compared to Faye. How Faye is just kind of getting by every day. And just having this wonderful life, and yet Lindsay's always having to struggle really hard in everything she does. And then of course, you know, Faye is one of the types who, who says to her, "Did you go to church?" Uh, I said, "You know, asks her that every Monday morning. Did you go to church? Did you go to church?" And of course, Lindsay, you know, uh, avoids that. Uh, you know, saying, "Look, we should be talking about things like that." You know, and my faith is not your, you know, your business and so forth. But then later on, of course. Certainly, Lindsay ends up uh, going that way, um, and then, of course, is uh, uh, made fun of by some of the coworkers uh, uh, in the office um, for doing that. Uh, Nick, on the other hand, uh, Nick uh, goes into the career of you know he tries to pursue a career in Hollywood. And again, a lot of Nick is uh, based on uh, based on me, and so therefore, uh, Nick is pursuing a career. Uh, in uh, in Hollywood, he doesn't quite make it, but then he uh, realizes, you know, the blessings uh, that that he got all through doing, uh, you know, local productions, and ends up writing a book about it. And uh, so he ends up taking a job uh, working for uh, a distribution company that uh, distributes uh, DVDs of Hollywood features. So he's in sort of an offshoot of the industry, a very offshoot of it. But uh, yet he does have a, a connection uh, to it, and that's, uh, of course, the career that he's in uh, at the time that he meets uh, Lindsay. And so uh, that's uh, you know, that's where they are. They both uh, end up being uh, career people. I was going to ask you, had they known each other before? Had they crossed paths before and years pass and then they meet again? But they, they meet for the first time in their middle years. You know, some some people yes. they meet when they're kids, and then they they go on and live their lives, and then they meet up again. So I was, I was going to ask you if that was the case with Lindsay and Nick. No, it's not. But they find out that they have very 
kindred spirits. In other words, it's almost as though they were they were made for each other and their experiences in life were very much the same, yet slightly different. They didn't know each other, but they they lived a lot of the same things. They went through a lot of the same things. Uh with you know different variations, but their their paths were the same, and they meet up, uh, you know, when they're uh, you know when they're both divorced, uh, Lindsay in her late thirties, Nick in his early forties. What made them? What made them suddenly? So so Lindsay was into the materialism. She gave her life to Christ. We understand, but we still keep our personalities and our likes and dislikes sure. don't change when we become become Christians or any faith, it doesn't change your personality or what you like and don't like. If you like orange, you still like orange. If you like a certain, those things don't change. If you're an extrovert, you're still an extrovert. And then, Dick, what made them decide? Not only did they both move away from, like, uh, Lindsay, the materialism, and Nick, just maybe he was chasing women. Uh, Not only did they move away from these things, but... um, what they I also would have to say, my first marriage failed, and I'm just not going. I'm not doing it again. I can walk with Christ, but I can also do that and be single. What made Lindsay and Nick ready to do the work to enjoy the rewards of a good relationship the second time? Well, they both uh, they were both lonely. Uh, they both uh, they both you know uh, knew that they needed you know or. I shouldn't really say needed, but they both wanted to share their lives with somebody. You know, they felt that their lives, uh, what they went through the first time around in their first marriages, they didn't get what they, you know, what they needed to really fulfill them uh, in marriage. And certainly they they didn't want to give up on marriage. They both, uh, you know, had that foundation that they, you know, they believed in marriage. They they wanted to, you know, certainly share their lives with uh, with people. And uh, and so that's what they what they do, um, but uh, they've they've come to realize that uh, you know the lives that they lived were very much uh, in sin, and uh, and yeah there are still elements in there. I'll give you a real good example. Uh, Nick, uh, the character of Nick, you know he's very much into body image. Uh, you see that in, in young Nick. Uh, he looks for you know the most beautiful women that he can uh, that he can find, and those are the women that he pursues uh, because he's got this you know he falls for you know the cosmopolitan image that society uh, puts on uh, puts on women, and of course when he meets Lindsay, she's not you know not of that caliber at all. She's actually uh, overweight and just uh, you know just an average average ordinary woman. And so he's got to be able to kind of see past that. And, of course, uh, during their time of their relationship, one of the things that they do is Lindsay uh, has a desire to uh, get her figure back because she was uh, very uh, very attractive in her younger years, and then she uh, developed, a, uh, a, I guess you could say, a, a habit of overeating and uh, because she looked uh, to use food uh, for comfort and um, went on the path of, of gluttony to uh, escape uh, from the realities of what was going on in, in her life because it made her feel good for those few minutes uh, while she was eating. And so she had this goal of wanting to get her figure back. And so uh, when they come together, she asks Nick to kind of help her do that. So they both kind of work uh, together uh, on that. 
and uh, so that was kind of a thing that uh, a thing that they they worked through together. It's one of the things that uh, that helps uh, uh, keep their bond is they're both kind of looking to uh, be what they want to be, um, what they used to be, uh, I guess you could say, in their in their old lives. But they kind of have to see things differently, but yet uh, there's still that element uh, in them, I guess you could say. Yeah, we don't completely. We still our personality. Some people think your personality is gonna change, and it's you're gonna be a come brand. You're still gonna you know like what you like and don't like. Generally, you're not gonna become a new whole new person. Uh, exactly. Yeah, your focus and things will change. I want to talk now too, and I I I don't remember if I heard this name before when I was doing before I started researching for your interview, but Errol Scruggs. So can you? Talk to us about the process of co-writing the book, Earl Scruggs, a bluegrass legend. Is he is he like really widely known? I mean, like a Dolly Parton, a Johnny Cash. Is he widely known, like in when certain circles to, like that? When it comes to the five-string banjo, there's no bigger name than uh, that of Earl Scruggs. He's uh, you know, he's definitely the man. Uh, he uh, uh, is. Uh, Credited with really popularizing the three-finger style of uh, banjo playing, you know, the uh, banjo picking, and uh, he really brought that to. Uh, he didn't invent it, but he really brought that to uh, to the forefront, made it uh, nationally known. Uh, Earl's work. Uh, most people have heard Earl, but they don't really know that it's Earl. If you've ever watched the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, the uh, the theme song that you hear at the beginning of the show and at the end of the show, well, the banjo that you hear, that's Earl Scruggs. Oh, and, okay. uh, yeah, in fact, Earl and uh, his former partner, Lester Flatt, uh, actually did appearances on uh, the Beverly Hillbillies. They appeared in six episodes uh, as friends of the Clampets from Back in the Hills. And um, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Bonnie and Clyde with uh, uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, uh, there's um, banjo music that you hear during the car chase scenes. And that's uh, that's Earl Scruggs. That's his signature uh, his signature tune, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, which has become like the anthem of the five string banjo. Um, Earl uh, appeared regularly at the, uh, the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, again, he was about as big as you could get in bluegrass uh, music, and um, so uh, certainly uh, the inspiration of everybody who plays a five string banjo, who, who picks a five string banjo. Uh, Earl was certainly uh, their their primary uh, influence. So, uh, yeah, very very big name. Uh, he had a tr- uh, tremendous impact on a lot of uh, careers uh, in, in country music uh, uh, as well. Did you interview him in person and record like his responses as you were compiling the book? How did you collect the material for the book Earl Scruggs, a bluegrass legend? Yeah, actually, it's called Earl Scruggs Banjo Icons. But um, okay. uh, Earl, but Earl, uh, Earl passed away. He, he passed away in 2012. I started uh, working on this uh, on this uh, project uh, in uh, 2015, and uh, really, my former banjo uh, teacher, uh, Dave, uh, David Russell, who uh, is the co-author on the book, he had this idea to do a biography on Earl because it had never been done before. And I wanted to encourage him to pursue it. And, of course, uh, as we talked about it, he started asking me, well, will you work on it with me? Will you work on it with me? And 
at first I was very apprehensive about doing it because I, you know, I didn't know if I really wanted to or if I uh, uh, knew enough uh, to to uh, to do it. So I kind of just said, well, I'll, I'll think about it. I let three months go by, and I finally started uh, thinking, hey, oh, maybe I do want to do that. Maybe I, I, I really would like to do it. I watched my daughter uh, really embrace uh, Earl's uh, music uh, as much as uh, as a three-year-old at that time could do. Uh, she's eight now, but uh, at that time she was three. And so uh, you know, I watched her uh, enjoy the, uh, the, the banjo music, and so I thought, okay, well, uh, I'd like to do it. So I called him up, and I said, what's going on with that Scruggs book? And he said, well, I haven't stopped thinking about it. And I said, do you still want me to be a part of it? He said, yes. And I said, all right, well, let's get started on it now. And so um, one of the first things I did was I reached out to the Scruggs family and to ask, you know, their, their thoughts on it. Because Earl, uh, again, had passed away. His wife, Louise, had passed away, who, was, uh, who had managed his career. And so uh, it was really uh, reached out to his sons and, uh, and getting their blessing uh, to do it. And then also uh, at the same time, too, uh, contacting everybody that we could think of in bluegrass music, uh, particularly the banjo players, to discuss their memories uh, with Earl. And uh, it included some big-name uh, country stars uh, that participated in the book. Uh, Vince Gill participated. Uh, Charlie Daniels uh, participated. <clears throat> Roger McGuinn, who is a member of uh, the uh, uh, rock group uh, The Birds, uh, participated in it. Steve Martin. Uh, the comedian uh, and banjo player uh, participated. So we were able to very successfully uh, get interviews uh, with these folks. And uh, Max Bear, who was Jethro on the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, participated. And so um, it was just sitting down and interviewing uh, them, getting their stories and their memories. And uh, that's kind of how the book uh, came about. Wow. Once again, you're just going after it. You're just going after. Um, so, can you tell us about some of the things that you do cover about him in the book? Do you take readers from, like, his childhood through his early career development, and some of the highlights in his career in the book? Yeah, it's a complete. Uh, it's a complete biography uh, from uh, his birth <clears throat> all the way up to his death, and uh, uh, it's a book that really honors uh, his uh, his legacy. In fact, the uh, last uh, chapter of the book is nothing but a testament of everybody uh, who has impacted kind of their journeys on uh, learning uh, Scruggs-style playing and, uh, you know, why they, uh, why they wanted to play the banjo and, you know, how Earl uh, really uh, played a major role in that. And, of course, you know, their... Uh, uh, their their memories of Earl as well, but uh, it's a, it's a complete uh, biography, and uh, it really just walks through how he started uh, three finger pick, uh, picking, and how uh, he he did it uh, accidentally. Uh, he was learning a song called uh, Reuben, which is the big bluegrass uh, uh, standard, and uh, he was uh, two finger picking, and then he uh, started to incorporate the middle uh, finger in there almost by accident. And which is, you know, again, what he was his goal, but he just did it uh, serendipitously. And, uh, you know, it's a song, Ruben, and uh, it was in the living room of uh, his parents' house, and he screamed, you know, he was just a boy at the time, I've got it, I've got it. You know, he, he learned wow. how to do it. And uh, just his hours of practicing and just his 
uh, his uh, audition uh, with Bill Monroe, the founder of Bluegrass Music, and his years uh, playing with Monroe and how he really reinvented the instrument uh, in uh, 1945 at the Grand Ole Opry when he came out and he started playing people. Uh, listen to uh, the Opry uh, on the radio, and of course there were those that were in attendance uh, at the Opry in Nashville, and nobody had ever seen or heard anybody play the banjo like Earl Scruggs did with that three-finger style, because it was always a frailing, kind of like a strumming uh, style, and, uh, you know, like Roy Clark, uh, he was another one who participated uh Roy Clark had said that, uh, he said, I thought this guy had seven fingers on one hand and 12 fingers on the other because I didn't know how he was getting that sound out of that instrument. And then, of course, uh, him and Lester Flatt, they left uh, Bill Monroe. They started their own uh, band, uh, Fog Mountain Boys, which you know, became widely known as just Flatt and Scruggs. And uh, it takes you through the evolution of uh, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, uh, his uh, signature song. Uh, also, he invented uh, what was called Scruggs Tuners, uh, which kind of uh, changed the tuning of, uh, of uh, the banjo on the second, third string. Uh, you go from G to D just by uh, tuning it with a, a simple uh, tune that starts and stops it. And it gives it kind of a, of a, of a twangy sound, kind of like a wow uh, uh, sound. So as you're playing a song, you can do that while you're playing, and it just kind of gives a, an, an added uh, edge. And it was very revolutionary uh, uh, at the time. It was uh, an invention that, uh, that he came up with that's still used uh, today. And, um, and then, of course, uh, going to uh, uh, doing the Beverly Hillbillies, how Paul Henning saw them at the Ashgrove uh, Coffee House in Los Angeles and decided these are the guys who are going to do the, the opening and closing to the Beverly Hillbillies. And Paul Henning. Uh, the creator of the Beverly Hillbillies was so enamored with uh, Flatt and Scruggs that he wanted the world to see them, so he put them on the show. Uh, they first come on in season one as both uh, being in love with Jed's cousin Pearl. And uh, and then the last time they're on there, I think, was in 1967, uh, right to around the time Bonnie and Clyde, uh, the movie, had come out. And um, so... Then there's the breakup of Flat and Scruggs, and then Earl had to reinvent himself. Uh, he wanted to play with his sons, uh, Gary and Randy, and then his son, uh, youngest son, Steve, later on. And uh, they formed uh, the Earl Scruggs Review, which uh, one of the early members of that was uh, country music star Charlie Daniels. And this is way back when Charlie Daniels was just working for uh, record producer Bob Johnston. And, uh, you know, Charlie had credited uh, Earl for really taking him under his wing and, uh, you know, and helping him uh, develop his craft uh, as an artist. And, uh, and then it just uh, goes really right well, to... Well, you, uh, you, you have, you know, we, we have we have about five minutes left, and I have so many other questions to ask you, and I'm just not going to get to them all. But really, really, really quick, uh, I, I mean, I had so many other questions to ask you, but can you introduce our off-the-shelf listeners to TD Land, Detroit? This looks so exciting to me, and I wanted to ask you how many Detroit-based TV shows were there in, during like the 40s and the 70s that you that you pull, were able to pull this TV Land Detroit together. Well, TV Land Detroit came out of a conversation me and a buddy uh, were having about old, uh, you know, Detroit TV shows, and I thought that'd be a really cool book to uh, to do. 
And, uh, um, you know, certainly Detroit had its uh, fair share, just as many other uh, markets at that time, of original shows, kids' shows, dance shows, movie hosts, uh, local talk shows, and, and such. And so um, rather than doing all of the shows and having a book that would be about a 1,000 pages long, I, I knew I could only do uh, a limited number, so I chose 25 of the top uh, best-remembered programs and uh, – uh, in, in all those different genres, and um, and it was done by a survey, and then later I consulted with some Detroit uh, uh, television uh, personalities, uh, the older ones, and they all agreed that uh, the list that I came up with was a, a very good one. Uh, so I wanted to present the, the shows uh, with a lot of depth of character, what they uh, what they were. Uh, to uh, you know to the audience, uh, what went on uh, the shows, certainly behind the scenes and just uh, the impact uh, that they really made in Detroit. And, of course, it starts, you know, the opening chapter. Uh, the first show that I cover was that of Soupy Sales. And most folks know uh, Soupy Sales, uh, the famous comedian uh, who has since passed uh, just a few years ago. But uh, Soupy, uh, his career really launched in uh, Detroit, Michigan, uh, when he did his show from 1953 to 1960 here, Lunch with Soupy. And, of course, that became a national show uh, on the ABC network in 1960. And um, so it was just a matter of going out and getting uh, in touch with everybody who used to work on the shows in front of the camera, behind the camera, and then, of course, some fans. And um, I was quite uh, quite happy uh, with the book uh, uh, when, it was, uh, when it was finished. And uh, a lot of those uh, TV people that I did interview, that was, uh, I think, the final interview for, for many of them. <laughs> a lot of them have passed. Uh, yeah, the people, it's funny because on the cover of the book, I, I put together about uh, 10 different uh, people on the cover. I had my cousin do uh, an animation, uh, uh, an artist handwritten or uh, hand-drawn uh, uh, portrait kind of of a bunch of the TV uh, personalities in the living room watching TV. And uh, when I started the project, uh, only three of the people that are on the cover uh, had had passed. And now today, only two of the people on the cover are still with us. Oh, my goodness. You know, you got to yeah. live while you're here. <laughs> you got to do it. And, and they, to their credit, and I think that's the difference in the decisions that we make. Like you've gone on and done things you wanted to do, whether somebody told you no, 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 and you like, I'm going to do it, and you found a way. At the end of it, of our journeys here, that's what it comes down to. It really does. You're going to just do average, or you're going to go and do what you really want to do. You have done what an amazing career, even if you don't see it that way. You have I mean, you have had an amazing career and you're still going, which is good. Can you tell our off the shelf listeners where they can get copies of the the the, the films you work with or TV shows and your books? Where can off the shelf listeners get copies of your works? Well, um, my books uh, certainly uh, through the usual uh, outlets, uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can also get them off the publishers' uh, websites directly too. For TV Land Detroit, it's University of Michigan Press. For uh, Roll Scruggs, it's uh, uh, Roman and Littlefield. And for Staying on the Vine, it's Crosslink Publishing. But they're all on again Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, and. Uh, uh, 
bunch of other uh, book outlets uh, online. And uh, as far as uh, getting in touch uh, with me directly, uh, if anybody would like, um, I have uh, an email address, uh, tvlanddetroit at yahoo.com. And uh, I do uh, check it regularly, and, uh, and I'll be happy to, uh, you know, respond to uh, all inquiries. And um, uh, I just hope uh, folks uh, will enjoy uh, the work uh, that I've done. And, again, the, uh, the latest work, uh, Staying on the Vine, which I feel is very, very, uh, certainly very important. Um, I think uh, everybody who reads that will see themselves uh, in there. And... Um, uh, it's a good way to kind of uh, see where you are uh, in life and just know that, you know, um, the best way to live life is, uh, you know, certainly in, uh, uh, you know, honoring and worshiping uh, and loving uh, and obeying uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, stand on the vine, stand in Christ. We have been honored to have Gordon Castanero here with us this morning. He is uh, just a of so many different works. He's, books he's authored include Staying on the Vine, his latest, TV Land Detroit, and Errol Scruggs, a banjo icon. He's, he loves Detroit. He hails from Detroit. He graduated from California State University with a degree in radio, television, and film. And he, his documentary, Michigan, it started here on December 7, 1996, and it earned 11.5 rating and a Michigan Emmy nomination again we encourage you to go out and support gordon castanero and he's online at dreamworldenterprises.net forward slash castanero and that's spelled c-a-s-t-e-l-n-e-r-o remember you guys the quote we started with when you do something out of love you don't count the cost we want to thank gordon for being here with us please go out and support him his books and and the, the the tv documentaries the works that he's worked on he and if you came into the show midstream you want to finish his streaming you can listen to it in its entirety in the archives and share it with others who might be interested in Earl Scruggs Detroit Detroit television TV land type Detroit works and staying on the vine of course which is timeless of Stand in Christ. Thank you to Gordon Castanero for being here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. And thank you to each of you who tune in and our loyal listeners. Thank you for being here with us on Off the Shelf Radio. Remember, you are amazing. You are awesome. You are incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. And remember, if you're in the daylight savings time, the Set your clock back an hour early Sunday morning. Thank you, Gordon. I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. All right. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.